You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and we got a special episode uh, uh, this time. We got uh, uh, guest host uh, Sam Vellante, uh, my my nephew. Uh, he goes to school down in Arizona State, uh, Walter Cronkite uh, School of Journalism. Also a hip hop fan and has his own hip hop radio show. And we will both uh, be speaking to uh, Ben Westhoff. Uh, and I encountered uh, Ben's work on a book called American uh, Gangsters, uh, based on uh, West Coast hip hop. He's also done uh, a book of investigative journalism called Fentanyl Inc. Uh, and has also delved into more hip hop uh, with a book on uh, what's known as uh, Dirty South. Um, ben, want to welcome you to the program. Hey, Ken, thanks for having me. And uh, and Sam, uh, it, it's it's a great pleasure and an honor to have you uh, here as well. I just wanted to, if you just say a little hello. Yeah, thanks for having me on as a co-host. Super awesome. Absolutely. All right, Ben, uh, you're into a lot of different things. You're a great investigative journalist. You like your hip hop. What were you like when you were younger? Did you like writing? Did you like music, hip hop? What was what was going on? Yeah, I was trying to be a writer from before I could write. Even um, I used to dictate stories to my mom, and she would write them, and I would draw the pictures. And then choose your own adventure books were really popular when I was a kid, so I was trying to write my own versions of those. I got into hip hop in junior high. And I remember song like Naughty by Nature and um, Run DMC and groups like that. And then more in high school with the explosion of gangster rap on the West Coast. And, you know, like Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style was the biggest album at my school. And, uh, you know, NWA, Dr. Dre, The Chronic, um, all that stuff. And, and the culture, too like Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, you know, all the stuff coming out of Compton and South Central was really popular in my high school, despite the fact that um, it was in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, in St. Paul. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, um, uh, Sam's, uh, Sam's dad, Chris, my brother Chris, and I listened to a lot of hip hop uh, when we were younger and uh, just probably like the step before that with uh, uh, Fat Boys, uh, Run DMC, uh, African Bombada, you know, that kind of early uh, in infusion. And I got to say, um, it's been great. It was great uh, listening to your book, uh, American Gangsters, which I, I thought. Uh, yeah, was... it's, it, it's actually called Original Gangsters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I keep saying Americans. Original. Well, yeah, the original gangsters. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, Ben. Um, and so you uh, you kind of it became part of, a, you know, you at the high school. And at that time, were you seeing like like in St. Paul, were you seeing kind of like how uh hip hop was making inroads to you know to 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 white kids or suburban culture and and city culture yeah absolutely i mean um you don't really know how this stuff is happening at the time but 
after doing all this reporting on NWA and interviewing Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg and all these people, I I learned they were actually making targeting, trying to reach the Midwestern years and white kids and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I grew up in St. Paul, the city, actually, and my school was um, had this like reverse busing situation where, you know, the kids from white neighborhoods were actually bused into the city school. So it was, you know, like half black and half white. And um, I think I got a lot of exposure to black culture there. And that sort of informed a lot of the writing I would come to do. Yeah. Th- and, and, and thanks. Thanks for that background. Hey, Sam, just to, to, to bring you in and to give a little bit of context, we're talking about the you know how we what what we ran into uh, hip hop. What 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 about you, Sam? In the sense of like uh, where you what was influencing you uh, uh, on on listening to hip hop? Well, obviously, I'm from a different generation, but I find it very interesting how the culture was able to shift to the suburbs and more uh, specifically uh, whiter youth. And I was just wondering what inspired you, Ben, to start the writing process and researching on that rap subject, the West Coast, uh, real formation of their style of rap? Well, I was never a music critic. You know what I mean? I wasn't the guy who had the deep thoughts on the albums and and had strong, strong opinions. I always loved music, but I came about it as a journalist. And when I was I had my first job here in St. Louis at a weekly paper called the Riverfront Times, I was kind of trying to figure out what my beat was. And we had the freedom to write about whatever we wanted. And this was just after Nelly had blown up, uh, who you may remember, uh, hot in here. And um, he was like the biggest thing in St. Louis. And then all these other rappers started getting record deals. And so... I started writing about this really vibrant, emerging hip-hop scene in St. Louis, um, and it gave me a chance to speak with people I never would have spoken with otherwise. And I, you know, these were stories about people, you know what I mean? And as opposed to like a rock band where the, the members oftentimes, they did grow up in the suburbs and they came from affluent families, almost all of these rappers who I profiled had these really interesting stories, um, backgrounds coming through adversity, and and um, it was uh, a, a, a journalistic niche that I found, and I kind of stuck with that through my book about Southern hip hop called Dirty South, and then I became the LA Weekly music editor in 2011, and so that's when I really had the opportunity to interview, like I said, all my childhood heroes. And I talked with Ice-T, you know, the, 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 the surviving members of NWA, including MC Ren also. And um, it was, uh, it, and I got to go to Compton and South Central and really investigate the, the roots of this music as it pertains to the, the socio kind of political environment at the time as well. So there was like, you know, the, the crack era, the Bloods and the Crips, the, the Rodney King beating, the LA riots, and all of this stuff influenced this West Coast gangster rap. And so ultimately what my book, Original Gangsters, is, it's not just a, a book of music criticism. It's about the environment 
that these uh, these rappers came out of and um, made this music that changed the world. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Um, I just want to go back a bit, and you mentioned the Dirty South and um, how the Southern style of music developed. So were you listening to, like, T.I., Gucci, Lil Wayne, people like that? Were you able to, like, interact with their circles, or how did that work? Yeah, those are two of the three of the main characters in my book. But it's funny you mentioned them, because when I was reporting Dirty South, they were all in prison, you know, and, and also Lil Boozy, who is also one of the biggest Southern stars. So he was in prison, T.I., Lil Wayne, um uh gucci gucci has been in and out of prison you know for years um but but what really attracted me to that scene was like this this was the post tupac and biggie era right and so that's another thing i wrote about in original gangsters was the the tupac and biggie rivalry the east coast west coast beef and how it ended in their deaths so after that you know hip-hop was really kind of freaked out Everybody was worried they could be next. It had just it became agreed upon that the music had just gotten too violent. And so there was kind of the pendulum swung in the other direction. And so that was the the Puff Daddy era, like the shiny suit era, they call it. <laughs> and so suddenly everything was super commercial. And, you know, there were these bit these radio jams and um and um a lot of people, though, felt that hip-hop kind of lost its grittiness in this era. And then the Southern response was kind of to to take all of these, these guys who really weren't radio-ready, they weren't, like, sort of groomed for the mainstream, but they gained popularity through, you know, a real grassroots movement. And so these were guys, you know, in cities like New Orleans and Atlanta and Memphis um, in Houston, they were selling their albums out the back of the trunk and they, you know, the record labels weren't looking for them down there. And, um, these were guys who like really rapped about their real lives. And in a lot of cases they had came from, you know, backgrounds with a lot of poverty and violence. And so to a lot of people, this music, uh, just felt really fresh and authentic. Yeah, that's very interesting to hear. Um, it's definitely uh, important to me because that's a bit before my time. But even now, you see that Atlanta is probably the biggest city in hip hop. And so it's very interesting to find the roots of how that started. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at when Outkast was first coming up, there was, um, you know, there there wasn't really a hip hop presence much at all in Atlanta. There was... But there was starting to be, you know, more R&B-themed hit-making music, you know, TLC, and then um, you had stuff like Another Bad Creation, kind of kiddie hip-hop, and uh, people thought Outkast was such a breath of fresh air because they they didn't try to be like East Coast rappers or West Coast rappers. They, they used their own kind of Southern influence and Southern style to make something that was all their own. Hey, uh, Ben. One, uh, one, one of the things um, uh, in, in your research in uh, listening to original gangsters um, that that impacted me, or like my understanding was, 
uh, NWA has a, been a big band for me, like, you know, forever. And I, I, I tend to, I, I hadn't thought of them as a little bit more monolithic. Like that was any NWA and, and like, they were like some, uh, like, tight group like in my head almost you know like like public enemy or something um but in listening to your book it, it seemed pretty clear that there's a, a mix of you know kind of forethought chance accident and very 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 large personalities of course within nwa easy mc ren uh dre and and ice cube and i also appreciate in your book with with the break with ice cube in his work um with the bomb squad um, and, and, and telling some of that story. Was that something going into it uh, as far as what NWA was that, that, that you knew or in, and, and by saying new that these were just kind of like big individuals put together for a certain amount of time. Is, is that a decent takeaway? I didn't have any idea probably like you uh, about, who NWA really was, you know, I, I, when I was little, I was kind of scared of them. I thought these guys are, you do not want to mess with these guys. But as I learned, you know, easy E was really the only one who, um, was the real gangster. You know, he was a crack dealer. He was, you know, very heavy in the streets and it was in his image that the group's image was um, captured. And so Dr. Dre, you know, was um, in a song and dance group called World Class Wrecking Crew before NWA. And if you've seen the movie Straight Outta Compton, you remember him wearing the, you know, kind of like sequins and makeup. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he looked like Prince, really. A lot of guys looked like Prince in that era because he was just so huge. And uh, DJ Yellow was also in that group, World Class Wrecking Crew. And so, you know, and Ice Cube was just a kid. Ice Cube was actually rapping against gangs. And he, uh, you know, they, they didn't use drugs at all, didn't drink. They, they were kind of straight edge in their own ways, a lot of the members. But they sort of um, coalesced around Easy's idea of rapping about what was really happening in the streets. And um, that proved to be a successful formula for them. Yeah, and I know um I I know for me there's been this there's been this piece around uh, hip hop um of you know how it's appropriated uh, in, in the sense of like what you know it, you know is it real music and things like that it, you know is it art I could tell you when I was in high school I took a music class and we were supposed to diagnose like we would bring in a song um, and kind of go in front of the class. Here's the bridge. Here's the breakdown, all this stuff. And I was actually specifically, uh, forbidden, uh, to bring in any hip hop or rap. And that's <laughs> only, that's the only music that I knew, like the teacher. Well, I mean, how many, how, how big of a battle are you can have with your teacher at, you know, 16 or whatever. Um, so I went to the Eagles and <laughs> brought something in there, but, um, <laughs> You know, it is these clashes that I found when I had moved from the city to, you know, basically white suburb and kind of encountered, moved from a great acceptance of, you know, hip hop and or rap at the time to kind of this uh, rejection, um, which which leads to the to, to the question I wanted to get, which is one of the bigger questions is. 
Did you did you find that in your research of people kind of uh, or the general perception of, of denigrating, um, you know, rap as not being music or not being art and connecting to that what your idea of what art is? Yeah, definitely. There was a lot of anti hip hop sentiment in the 80s. You know, at first it, it wasn't really kind of didn't have the dangerous reputation, you know, at first. Early hip hop sounds a lot like disco. And if you heard the song Rapper's Delight, for example, the first big hip hop song. And it wasn't until Run DMC's, you know, Sucker MC's that it kind of got that the more hard edge sound. And then Run DMC played a show in Long Beach in, I think, 1986, where there was, um, it was like a big riot there and people got hurt. And so hip hop gradually be kind of, got this different reputation. But at the beginning, people just thought it was a fad, you know, and kind of like disco had had came and gone. And people thought hip hop was going to be the same way. But, you know, it really showed that it uh, had staying power. The other aspect was like the sampling, you know, and, and sampling is an intrinsic part of hip hop. It's a music that's based on a whole bunch of other types of music, sort of cutting and pasting and, you know, for some people, they didn't see that as art. You know, they saw it as stealing and appropriation. And, you know, I think that's that's ludicrous. I mean, uh, going back to Andy Warhol and much earlier than that, art has always kind of appropriated other styles and other genres. And to me, you know, art is... Um, is basically presenting something in a new way, thinking about and, and presenting something in a way that's that's unique and interesting. And um, hip hop, that's what hip hop is all about. It's, uh, it's a populist music that comes from uh, repressed culture where, you know, people didn't necessarily um, have access to all these expensive instruments and, you know, places to practice them, but they, you know, groups in the Bronx who had uh, access to a light pole to take electricity to power turntables and a box full of records could throw a huge party. So I think that the art component has been there all along. Yeah. And I think I, it's, it's, you, you mentioned Warhol and I, I thought of his quote and I thought it was really particular to almost hip hop. And when he said art is something you can, is what you can get away with. I think, you know, there's an element of that too within hip hop, getting, you know, getting away with things, pulling together sounds, uh, patching it together as far as it's, you know, it's, it's, it's early inception, but you know, it's like rock and roll, right? What is rock and roll? Soul, you know, soul. It, it's, it's, it's a mix of soul, folk, blues, etc. Um, Hey Ben, I know you did a book called, uh, uh, fentanyl uh, ink as well and i know uh in chat with sam um he, he, he had a question uh related to some of your other investigative journalism um and, and i believe your more recent book uh fentanyl ink yeah so um i was wondering i think you have a great perspective with both your knowledge of the music industry as well as your knowledge with these drugs and all the crisis going on right now so in the past couple of years We've seen the deaths of Mac Miller, Lil Peep, Juice World, a lot of these rappers. And I was wondering what if there should be, if you think that there should be more pressure on record labels or if 
there should be something done within the music industry to stop the crisis hitting that specific area? That's a really good question. Um, I have a Substack newsletter. It's called Drugs and Hip Hop. Um, and we have been writing about these these rappers who died from opioids and, and fentanyl. And it's it's a big, big problem. I, I, I don't think it's cool at all to, to rap about pills. Um, you know, you hear rappers like Future and, and a lot of other people that are talking about Xanax and, you know, Valiums or Oxycontin or whatever. Um, you know, often these pills are, especially when you get them on the black market, they're cut with fentanyl. These are, they're pressed to look exactly like the, the actual type of pill, like a Xanax, but it's it's made with fentanyl and it can kill you instantly. And, you know, kids today don't realize that any pill or any powder that you get on the black market could have fentanyl and kill you. And, um, you know, uh, hip hop has gone through different phases of different drugs that it sort of glamorized. And then, you know, in the early days, it, like, People didn't even like weed. You know, Dr. Dre famously said he uh, doesn't smoke weed because it's known to give a bro brother brain damage. And that was before the chronic. And um, and that kind of all shifted in the 90s. But, you know, weed is is a safe is a safe drug. No one's ever overdosed and died from weed. And I have no problem with that. Um, in the 2000s, it shifted towards lean a lot, which is codeine promethazine cough syrup, also known as Drank. And that's a very dangerous drug also. That's an opioid. And um, a lot of well-known rappers have died from drinking it, uh, most famously Pimp C from the group UGK. And, um, you know, the, the sound was popularized in Houston because the lean kind of slows down your perception and the Houston hip-hop was very very slow as well, um, popularized by this kind of uh, chopped and screwed style from a producer named DJ Screw. So, and then, and then in this past decade, it's really shifted towards pills. And um, I think a lot of people have the perception that because these are uh, pills that are sold as medicine, that they have to be safe, you know. But but that's really. Um, when I was coming up, it, you could sort of just go to a party and if someone handed you a pill, you could take it and you'd probably be okay. But that's just not the case anymore. And I don't think rappers should glamorize it at all. Um, I don't necessarily think, you know, there's a way to stop it with laws or, and I know that record companies, you know, whenever record companies try to get in the business of censoring musicians, um, it, it ends poorly, but I, um, you know, I think there should be a stigma attached to glamorizing pills in your songs. Yeah, I would definitely agree because it was very interesting that you brought up Future because many of these young rappers and fans both talk about how he inspired them to start Lean or he has mixtapes called Dirty Sprite and Codeine Crazy. Um, I think that's very interesting. And, um, so what, do you really have any ideas on how to combat this or anything like that? No, I don't. Um, you know, a lot of people over the years have complained about the violence in hip-hop. And, 
you know, along with the violence in video games, for example. And I'm certainly, you know, not in favor of, of glamorizing, um, you know, murdering people in songs, but that's something that's been a part of music, you know, for as long as we've had music, really. You know, murder ballads has been part of folk music for time memorial, time immemorial. Um, but I don't know, for some reason, uh, the pills stuff just strikes me differently. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're, um, more people are dying from fentanyl than any drug in history. You know, we're 2020 is on track to be the, the worst year for overdose death rates in America by a long shot. And so many of these well-known rappers have died from, from fentanyl and from pills that, um, it, it, it just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. And so um, how do you, you, you know, and, and the reason I brought up the violence was like studies have, have shown that it doesn't really, you know, listening to a song or playing a violent video game or seeing a violent movie doesn't really lead you to commit violent acts per se. But for some reason, I, it strikes me that um, when people do hear about taking these pills, it makes it more likely that they'll do it. And one reason I say that is because just like you were saying, Juice World said that he was inspired to start drinking lean um, after hearing Future talking about it. And then he, you know, died from opioids, you know, just a few years later. So I, I don't know what to do about it, though. Yeah, I think Juice World is a very interesting and specific case because he de he debated himself if he really would have been as good of an artist if he didn't have the drugs. So it's very interesting to see where these guys end up. But um, with the yeah, I mean, uh, another example is Little Wayne. He he was drinking the the syrup really heavily um, at, around the time of his the release of his album, The Carter Three, right? And so everyone loved that album. He was just sort of on a Critically, he was peaking, um, and then he got arrested, and he had to give up the lean. He had to like, um, you know, go to dry out in jail, and and then his next album, the Carter Four, like, really sucked, and everyone said it was because he had gone off the lean, and so, you know, uh, the artists, you know, for for as long as there's been art, again, have been using substances to find inspiration. I just think that there's a lot safer things you can do. You know, LSD, for example, has never killed anyone, so long as it's real LSD. Um, I just think that uh, using opioids for inspiration is just uh, so destructive. Right, and you also see, like, these artists really can't win because, as you said, like, they said uh, Lil Wayne on the Carter Four went off the lean, and that's why he was bad. But you also see people make the arguments that, once Chief Keef started the lean, he was bad. So it's a really tough situation for these artists. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the drug isn't, you know, writing these songs. These are things that are coming from within you. And um, you've, you've ultimately got to be confident in yourself. That's what I would say. Um, and, and Ben, one of, the, one of the things I wanted to mention um uh, about the uh, about the book um, original gangsters and uh, that I that I really appreciated was uh, 
he did a, a really for one of the few times that I've seen it in writing uh, very much humanize the issues uh, that are in hip hop and and humanize uh, Tupac in, in, in a way that I didn't quite know before, such as consciousness around, um, you know, Black Panthers uh, with, you know, with him growing up and kind of the political edge to it and the uh, the complicated nature of his personality, which had that kind of like liberation minded piece to it. But uh, also a lot of anger, you know, like a lot of anger that 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 people um, uh, connected to. And I found that with the members of um, uh, NWA and in in, in, uh, in in part about uh, Snoop Dogg. A question I had um, that is really kind of fascinating me about hip hop over time, and I think you see it with, um, uh, you know, gangster rap, Eminem, uh, et cetera, is kind of like the uh, pseudonym for the pseudonymous uh, authorship, right? That there's a that there's a different character um, that is, you know, in the lyrics that it is, you know, not the rapper themselves. Do, do you in in getting into that dynamic in in meeting the real rappers and the encountering their the personas um do 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 you think do you think that's been a a, a way to present very unsavory type of situations um by using you know it isn't me it's that character and do you think it's been an effective way to tell a story there's lots of artists who do that. Yeah, they sort of inhabit uh, this other mind frame. I think Beyonce has uh, Sasha Fierce, who is sort of this more sort of provocative character. And there are lots of examples. I mean, Dr. Dre, you could argue, has had a different persona on his entire career. He doesn't in real life, he is is not someone who enjoys smoking weed or lives a gangster lifestyle at all. Um, you know, I think that you know people compare it to um, gangster movies. You know, like The Sopranos TV show or you know The Godfather. I mean, nobody expects that Al Pacino is like that in real life, and I think it's a fair comparison when it comes to gangster rap. You know, these are characters and they're they're using the characters to sort of get at bigger truths and when it's done most artfully and interestingly it does that you know it's it's not just sort of about gratuitous violence but it's about you know poverty and how it leads to violence and how you know in the absence of a sort of um, a police for say you can depend on that there's a, a social order kind of determined by these kind of rogue elements and and i think um the best gangster rappers really get that across yeah i wanted to uh ask you you know of course within the podcast some larger uh theoretical questions and this one's kind of dig in a little bit more um uh, about you um you your your interests are you know are fascinating. Investigative journalists, you get deep uh, in into your work. Um, and back behind that is a larger question: is um, in your opinion, who or what made you who you are? Wow, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, you know, I think I'm a contrarian by nature, and. 
whenever people are saying the conventional wisdom, I just have this desire to say the opposite. And <laughs> I'm sure it's very annoying for people like my wife. Um, but I, I think it really is a, a great sort of instinct to have or um, when you're an investigative journalist, because so I think s there's so little actual journalism out there in the news we read every day. There's, you know, to, to me, to, to do journalism, all you have to do is pick up a phone and call someone and you say, why is this? Um, so much of the news we read is just other, sort of other people's reporting that's sort of reheated and presented. But when you when you dig in just a little bit, when you start talking to people, when you go into archival material, when you, you really start bearing down, it, it's very, very often the case that the truth is not the way it's being presented. It's often the exact opposite of the way it's being presented. And I, you know, try to just sort of clear my mind. I try to take away my preconceptions and I just really dig in. And, you know, if you would have told me that the members of NWA like loved Prince and they wore makeup before they <laughs> formed one of the hardest gangster rap groups ever, I never would have believed it. But, um, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. And I just love really bearing down and um, getting to the truth of the matter because it's usually so interesting. Yeah. And the, the in, in, in your research, um, I, and I enjoy investigative journalism and, and, and deep research uh, like you've done in, in the areas that. Uh, that you, you you covered, and I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of things that you learn in in, in connections um, that you make uh, through through that project. Did um did you find that uh, when you got into uh, the war, the the story of the battle of the 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 West Coast and um, the East Coast, which you know there were, you know, real violence and there's real uh, conflict and, and real hurt. D do you think that the, how it showed up in uh, the media was kind of uh, exaggerating what was going on? Or do you felt that it was actually, you know, at par with um, how the media was reporting it? I think there was a lot of really good journalism actually happening in the East Coast, West Coast era, particularly in Vibe magazine and also The Source and uh, some others. But and, and I tend to take the side of journalists, you know, who are trying to really present stuff as it's happening. But but at the same time, you know, there were a lot of elements at play. There was, you know, people trying to sell records, you know, the record labels the artists themselves. And there's this idea that controversy generates record sales. And so there, there was an instinct to sort of play stuff up undoubtedly. At the same time, you know, it, it's a little bit of a misnomer to call it an East, East Coast, West Coast beef, I think, because really, at least in the beginning, it was just Tupac. You know, Tupac was single-handedly instigating this thing and taking all these shots at, at Biggie Smalls and Death Row and at the beginning, especially, Biggie just wanted no part of this. And he, you know, Tupac had been his mentor and, and learned a lot from him. And when it came to Tupac's shooting, the non-fatal shooting in 1994, um, 
Tupac really blamed Biggie for either having something to do with it or maybe not knowing about it and not warning him. And even if Biggie did maybe hear something about it beforehand, he his own life may have been threatened. He couldn't say anything. Um, whatever the case, it's far from clear to me that Biggie, you know, really betrayed Tupac in that way. And so, but, you know, Tupac had, had been shot. He'd been put in jail. And he was just, you know, he was on a rampage. He got um, tied together with Suge Knight who sort of had his own interests and they didn't necessarily align with keeping Tupac safe. And um, he, you know, probably, but, 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 you know, another one of these sort of, um, sort of uh, historical corrections involving Tupac and, and Suge Knight is that, you know, a lot of people say it wasn't really Suge who was egging Tupac on. It was Tupac who was egging Suge on and he's the one who kind of made Suge into this sort of, um, you know, violent kind of menacing figure that he came, that he became. But whatever the case, um, Tupac really got things going. He tried to pull Snoop Dogg into it. Snoop Dogg didn't want any part of it. Um, and he sort of made the East Coast, West Coast a thing kind of almost single handedly. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um with the whole East Coast, West Coast beef. But um, everyone seems to have their own theory about what led to to Tupac's death. Uh, what is yours? Well, I go into it in great detail in Original Gangsters, but I, I think it's basically the Occam's razor theory, as I would call it. You know, earlier that night, Tupac and um, this group of people he was with at the Tyson fight got into this this heated argument with this guy from the Compton Crips and, you know, Tupac like hit him and they, they beat him up. It was all captured on video camera. And then this guy, Orlando Anderson, um, went back to, um, his, uh, friends who he'd come to Las Vegas with and they were staying in town. And then, you know, I think they came and killed Tupac. It, it was a, a direct provocation and um, it was that same day. And so there's a, a million theories, and a lot of them are really complicated. There's this big sort of police conspiracy. But to me, the, the most likely theory is probably the correct one. Yeah, I'd like... Uh, thank you, Ben, for Occam's razor. The simplest explanation <laughs> might might be the explanation, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, I had a, a question uh, related to you know you're, you're deep into the uh, res- you know the research you've done on, on gangster rap, and I always thought that the rap, the early rap that wasn't uh, gangster rap, always has this kind of there's this deep like playful aspect to it. Um, but I don't know if there's ever been a, a, a deeper, more extensive treatment of, you know, that which is in his, you, you know, the gangster rap or the more uh, sens- sensational. Have you found in general that there's been good research? I mean, uh, the Disco 3 who became the, you know, who became the Fat Boys and some of the stuff with UTFO, Roxanne, uh, you know, Shantae, um, kind of like, you know, uh, more playful banter. Has there ever been a, you know, good treatments in your opinion around some of that stuff? 
Uh, yeah, the the pre disc the the pre gangster rap era, um, really interesting time. There's this book called The Rap Attack by David Toop, T O O P. I might recommend. It's kind of hard to find. It's out of print, but that gets into the first years of hip hop and goes through the the mid '80s, I believe. Um, this that probably would be some of the stuff you're talking about. But you know, there's the movie Crush Groove. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen that's a really fun encapsulation of that era with um, the fat boys and run DMC and Curtis Blow and all that. And yeah, I love that era. I mean, it's it's so fun. It's uh, kind of a more kinder, gentler period in hip hop. And, they, you know, there were battles, too, but they were more kind of um, friendly in spirit and the the artists who engaged in them were friends you know before and afterward yeah the the break dancing uh battles as opposed to other means of uh, settling settling conflict uh crush groove just recently celebrated it's uh 30 30 no it must been must be longer than that maybe 35 uh, 35 yeah 35 year anniversary i think maybe in 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 october sometime and i i'd watched it uh, recently, um, Beastie Boys in there. I think Rick Rubin was in there, and at the end, the Human Beatbox, one of the you know the Fat Boys, bigger member, doing the Caterpillar at the end of the movie, which I seem to have forgotten. I didn't think he could do that. So amazing um, stuff. Uh, rap Attack. Well, it's good. Yeah, you, know, you can find uh, out of print books, um, and I, I appreciate that um that input uh with regards to any uh, i asked this question in general like does does art have um does art have a responsibility uh, in in role in addressing racism in applying to to hip-hop do you think that it has an historic role or responsibility to deal with racism i think historically that hip-hop has helped you know, diminish racist attitudes in in the U.S. to a to a really strong extent. I mean, I I believe that a lot of white kids that hip hop was their first exposure, in some cases only exposure, to black culture, and I think it had the effect of you know making people realize that you know rappers you know. African-American people were not really much different than they were themselves. And, um, you know, that the skin color is, is really something that's not that big a deal. Um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that politics, um, that rappers or, or any artist should be required to talk about politics. And I, I think that, you know, artists have a responsibility to talk about greater truths and i think if you get oftentimes if if you get caught up in the politics of the moment you're going to miss out on on bigger truths you know and and i i'm certainly a fan of you know protest music and like nwa's f the police you know i think is the greatest protest song of all time but i i definitely don't believe that artists have a responsibility or a requirement to to address current politics. Yeah, I think hip hop has always played an important role in activism because you see the early music and even throughout the 90s when Tupac was talking about changes, 
you see Polo G and Lil Baby making songs today, like The Bigger Picture and Wishing for a Hero and addressing today's social climate. Um, do you think that while the art it has changed, we went from the people talking about selling drugs to the people doing drugs, do you think hip-hop will always be a constant in music and right now it's the most dominant genre do you think it will stay that way for a while i think that hip-hop yeah is going to hold on to its perch it's it's such a youth centered music and it seems like rock and roll is kind of aged along with its fans but it seems like hip-hop is really just keeps innovating and be you know maintaining as the music of the youth so you know nothing lasts forever but um if you would have told me that hip-hop is would be coming up on its 50th anniversary you know if you told people that uh, at its inception a lot of people would have never believed it we're speaking with uh, Ben Westhoff, um, investigative journalist, and we have uh, Sam Vellante here. And leading into the, the big question, uh, Ben, um, why is there something rather than nothing? That is a good question. I think that's like the main question. I, I like that you titled your podcast that. I think this is the thing we should spend most of our days thinking about. Um, but unfortunately, I can't say that I really have anything. Um, I mean, it's interesting to think to me to think about like there were billions and billions of years before I achieved con consciousness, and presumably there will be billions of years after that. And um, you know, how did how did the stars align literally so that there's there's something? It's it's not something I have any idea about why, but I do think it's something that's worth appreciating. You know, it's it's worth something that should inform your daily decisions. I mean, when you think about like, um, you know, am I wasting time right now? Am I doing something frivolous? Am I, am I, um, you know, so many things had to happen for me to get to where to this moment in time you know if you think about it that way i think it helps your kind of fears melt away it uh it's inspiring you know um and that's what i try to keep in mind yeah i i and i i i i, I appreciate um the discussion around uh, you know, these philosophical questions and about art, because I think it's really behind, you know, the, the work that you do and uh, some of the hip hop artists you've covered in some of the perceptions. Um, I think there's a lot of deep thought uh, about society and about philosophy uh, in, in the music. And um, I, I really appreciate your comments. Uh, ben, uh, for, for listeners who are, who are listening, I want them to, to connect with, you know, with you, your work in, in your books, um, could, could you could you let listeners know, you know, where to find you, where to find your works, uh, anything along those lines? Yeah, you can just Google my name, Ben Westoff, um, and it'll take you to my website, which is just benwestoff.com. And uh, my newsletter is there. It's called Drugs and Hip Hop. You can find out information about my books and, um, you know. I, I really appreciate uh, your talking 
to me, Ken and Sam, about these issues, and I uh, appreciate your kind words. Oh yeah, um, it's 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 been a great pleasure for us. As Sam and I were talking before getting on uh, the show, I think our ex- uh, excitement was. Uh, was was pretty uh, equal. I've uh, tried to, you know, hip. You know, I, I grew up. My my parents, you know, they listened to a lot of classic rock and, uh, you know, rap as it was known when when I was growing up became, uh, you know, my music and uh, Sam's dad, Chris, you know, came our music and uh, do, you know, uh, you know, break dancing was 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 part of the culture. So it was a big part of it. And it's, it's been great to kind of talk about, you know, even talking about the history with Sam here and you and myself, uh, the, the range of history and, uh, of, of hip hop and the, the different type of artists. Um, I really appreciate the, you know, the, the research that you've done and, uh, you know, the pulling out the, the conclusions and the research from, from talking to, you know, the primary artists that, that have been involved. Um, I tried to get into hip hop on the show. I had, um, Sean Wynn in an early episode who's, uh, uh, in a, a band called the Praetorians. And uh, coming up, I'm going to have uh, Nikki Lynette, who's a Chicago hip-hop artist and also a mental health uh, advocate. Um, and I really look forward to to talking uh, to her. But I um, uh, wanted to thank you so much, uh, Ben. Um, uh, I'm actually really looking forward to um, uh, getting into your recent work, uh, Fentanyl uh, uh, Inc., and uh, in, in some of your additional uh, research on uh, Dirty South. Uh, uh, a deep thanks to you, Ben, uh, for your time, uh, for your efforts in, in writing these stories. And uh, thanks, Sam, down in, uh, down in Arizona State, uh, embarking on uh, his uh, journalism research work and practice. Um, uh, thank you so much uh, for everything. Absolutely. Well, great talking to you guys. Take care, Ben. Thanks again. Okay. Take care. You are listening to something rather than nothing.